Chapter Twenty One of The Virginian. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister. Chapter Twenty One. In a state of sin. Thunder sat eminent upon the missionary's brow. Many were to be at his mercy soon, but for us he had sunshine still. I am truly sorry to be turning you upside down," he said importantly. "But it seems the best place for my service." He spoke of the tables pushed back and the chairs gathered in the hall, where the storm would presently break upon the congregation. Eight thirty, he inquired. This was the hour appointed, and it was only twenty minutes off. We threw the unsmoked fractions of our cigars away and returned to offer our services to the ladies. This amused the ladies. They had done without us. All was ready in the hall. We got the cook to help us, Mrs. Ogden told me, so as not to disturb your cigars. In spite of the cowboys, I still recognize my own country. In the cook? I rather densely asked. Oh, no, I don't have a Chinaman. It's in the length of after-dinner cigars. Had you been smoking, I returned, you would have found them short this evening. You make it worse, said the lady. We have had nothing but Dr. McBride. We'll share him with you now, I exclaimed. Has he announced his text? I've got one for him, said Molly Wood, joining us. She stood on tiptoe and spoke it comically in our ears. I said in my haste, All men are liars. This made us merry as we stood among the chairs in the congested hall. I left the ladies and sought the bunk-house. I had heard the cheers, but I was curious also to see the men and how they were taking it. There was but little for the eye. There was much noise in the room. They were getting ready to come to church, brushing their hair, shaving, and making themselves clean, amid talk occasionally profane and continuously diverting. "'Well, I'm a Christian, anyway,' one declared. "'I'm a Mormon, I guess,' said another. "'I belong to the Knights of Pythias,' said a third. "'I'm a Mohammedist,' said a fourth. "'I hope I ain't going to hear nothing to shock me.' And they went on with their joking. But Trampas was out of the joking. He lay on his bed reading a newspaper, and took no pains to look pleasant. My eyes were considering him when the blithe Scipio came in. "'Don't look so bashful,' said he. "'There's only us girls here.' He had been helping the Virginian move his belongings from the bunk-house over to the foreman's cabin. He himself was to occupy the Virginian's old bed here. "'And I hope sleeping in it will bring me some of his luck,' said Scipio. "'You'd ought to have seen us when he told us in his quiet way. "'Well,' Scipio sighed a little, "'it must feel good to have your friends glad about you.' "'Especially Trampas,' said I. "'The judge knows about that,' I added. "'Knows, does he? What's he say?' Scipio drew me quickly out of the bunk-house. "'Says it's no business of his.' "'Said nothing but that?' Scipio's curiosity seemed strangely intense. "'Made no suggestion? Not a thing?' "'Not a thing. Said he didn't want to know and didn't care.' "'How did he happen to hear about it?' snapped Scipio. "'You told him,' he immediately guessed. "'He never would.' And Scipio jerked his thumb at the Virginian, who appeared for a moment in the lighted window of the new quarters he was arranging. 
He never would tell, Scipio repeated. And so the judge never made a suggestion to him, he muttered, nodding in the darkness. So it's just his own notion. Just like him, too, come to think of it. Only I didn't expect... Well, I guess he could surprise me any day he tried. You're surprising me now, I said. What's it all about? Oh, him and Trampas. What? Nothing surely happened yet. I was as curious as Scipio had been. No, not yet, but there will. Great heavens, man, when? Just as soon as Trampas makes the first move, Scipio replied easily. I became dignified. Scipio had evidently been told things by the Virginian. Yes, I up and asked him plumb out, Scipio answered. I was lifting his trunk in at the door, and I couldn't stand it no longer, and I asked him plumb out. You've sure got Trampas where you want him, that's what I said, and he up and answered and told me, so I know. At this point Scipio stopped. I was not to know. I had no idea, I said, that your system held so much meanness. Oh, it ain't meanness, and he laughed ecstatically. What do you call it, then? He'd call it discretion, said Scipio. Then he became serious. It's too blamed grand to tell you. I'll leave you to see it happen. Keep around, that's all. Keep around. I pretty near wish I didn't know it myself. What with my feelings at Scipio's discretion, and my human curiosity, I was not in that mood which best profits from a sermon. Yet even though my expectations had been cruelly left quivering in mid-air, I was not sure how much I really wanted to keep around. You will therefore understand how Dr. McBride was able to make a prayer and to read scripture without my being conscious of a word that he had uttered. It was when I saw him opening the manuscript of his sermon that I suddenly remembered I was sitting, so to speak, in church, and began once more to think of the preacher and his congregation. Our chairs were in the front line, of course, but being next the wall I could easily see the cowboys behind me. They were perfectly decorous. If Mrs. Ogden had looked for pistols, daredevil attitudes, and so forth, she must have been greatly disappointed. Except for their weather-beaten cheeks and eyes, they were simply American young men, with mustaches and without, and might have been sitting, say, in Danbury, Connecticut. Even Trampas merged quietly with a general placidity. The Virginian did not, to be sure, look like Danbury, and his frame and his features showed out of the mass, but his eyes were upon Dr. McBride with a cream-like propriety. Our missionary did not choose Miss Wood's text. He made his selection from another of the Psalms, and when it came I did not dare to look at anybody. I was much nearer unseemly conduct than the cowboys. Dr. McBride gave us his text sonorously. They are altogether become filthy. There is none of them that doeth good, no, not one. His eye showed us plainly that present company was not accepted from this. He repeated the text once more, then, launching upon his discourse, gave none of us a ray of hope. I had heard it all often before, but preached to cowboys it took on a new glare of untimeliness, of grotesque obsoleteness, as if someone should say, 
Let me persuade you to admire woman, and forthwith hold out her bleached bones to you. The cowboys were told that not only they could do no good, but that if they did contrive to, it would not help them. Nay, more, not only honest deeds availed them nothing, but even if they accepted this especial creed which was being explained to them as necessary for salvation, still it might not save them. Their sin was indeed the cause of their damnation, yet, keeping from sin, they might nevertheless be lost. It had all been settled for them not only before they were born, but before Adam was shaped. Having told them this, he invited them to glorify the creator of the scheme. Even if damned, they must praise the person who had made them expressly for damnation. That is what I heard him prove by logic to these cowboys. Stone upon stone he built the black cellar of his theology, leaving out its beautiful park and the sunshine of its garden. He did not tell them the splendor of its past, the noble fortress for good that it had been, how its tonic had strengthened generations of their fathers. No, wrath he spoke of, and never once of love. It was the bishop's way, I knew well, to hold cowboys by homely talk of their special hardships and temptations, and when they fell he spoke to them of forgiveness and brought them encouragement. But Dr. McBride never thought once of the lives of these waifs. Like himself, like all mankind, they were invisible dots in creation. Like him, they were to feel as nothing, to be swept up in the potent heat of his faith. So he thrust out to them none of the sweet, but all the bitter of his creed, naked and stern as iron. Dogma was his all in all, and poor humanity was nothing but flesh for its cannons. Thus to kill what chance he had for being of use seemed to me more deplorable than it did evidently to them. Their attention merely wandered. Three hundred years ago they would have been frightened, but not in this electric day. I saw Scipio stifling a smile when it came to the doctrine of original sin. "'We know of its truth,' said Dr. McBride, "'from the severe troubles and distresses to which infants are liable, and from death passing upon them before they are capable of sinning.' Yet I knew he was a good man, and I also knew that if a missionary is to be tactless, he might almost as well be bad." I said their attention wandered, but I forgot the Virginian. At first his attitude might have been mere propriety. One can look respectfully at a preacher and be internally breaking all the commandments. But even with the text I saw real attention light in the Virginian's eye. And keeping track of the concentration that grew on him with each minute made the sermon short for me. He missed nothing. Before the end his gaze at the preacher had become swerveless. Was he convert or critic? Convert was incredible. Thus was an hour passed before I had thought of time. When it was over we took it variously. The preacher was genial and spoke of having now broken ground for the lessons that he hoped to instill. He discoursed for a while about trout-fishing and about the rumored uneasiness of the Indians northward where he was going. It was plain that his personal safety never gave him a thought. He soon bade us good night. 
The Ogdens shrugged their shoulders and were amused. That was their way of taking it. Dr. McBride sat too heavily on the judge's shoulders for him to shrug them. As a leading citizen in the territory, he kept open house for all comers. Policy and good nature made him bid welcome a wide variety of travelers. The cowboy out of employment found bed and a meal for himself and his horse, and missionaries had before now been well received at Sunk Creek Ranch. "'I suppose I'll have to take him fishing,' said the judge ruefully. "'Yes, my dear,' said his wife, "'you will, and I shall have to make his tea for six days.' "'Otherwise,' Ogden suggested, "'it might be reported that you were enemies of religion.' "'That's about it,' said the judge. "'I can get on with most people.' but elephants depress me. So we named the doctor Jumbo, and I departed to my quarters. At the bunkhouse the comments were similar but more highly salted. The men were going to bed. In spite of their outward decorum at the service, they had not liked to be told that they were altogether become filthy. It was easy to call names, they could do that themselves and they appealed to me, several speaking at once, like a concerted piece at the opera. Say, do you believe babies go to hell? Ah, of course you don't. There ain't no hereafter anyway, ain't there? Who told you? Same man as told the preacher we were all a sifted set of sons of guns. Well, I'm going to stay a Mormon. Well, I'm going to quit fleeing from temptation. That's so. Better get it in the neck after a good time than a poor one and so forth. Their wit was not extreme, yet I should like Dr. McBride to have heard it. One fellow put his natural soul pretty well into words. If I happened to learn what they had predestinated me to do, I'd do the other thing just to show them. And Trampas? And the Virginian? They were out of it. The Virginian had gone straight to his new abode. Trampas lay in his bed, not asleep, and sullen as ever. "'He ain't got religion this trip,' said Scipio to me. "'Did his new foreman get it?' I asked. "'Huh! It would spoil him. You keep around, that's all. Keep around.' Scipio was not to be probed, and I went, still baffled, to my repose. No light burned in the cabin as I approached its door. The Virginian's room was quiet and dark, and that Dr. McBride slumbered was plainly audible to me even before I entered. Go fishing with him, I thought as I undressed, and I selfishly decided that the judge might have this privilege entirely to himself. Sleep came to me fairly soon in spite of the doctor. I was wakened from it by my bed's being jolted, not a pleasant thing that night. I must have started and it was the quiet voice of the Virginian that told me he was sorry to have accidentally disturbed me. This disturbed me a good deal more, but his steps did not go to the bunk-house, as my sensational mind had suggested. He was not wearing much, and in the dimness he seemed taller than common. I next made out that he was bending over Dr. McBride. The divine at last sprang upright. "'I am armed,' he said. "'Take care. Who are you?' "'You can lay down your gun, sir. "'I feel like my spirit was going to bear witness. "'I feel like I might get an enlightening.' 
He was using some of the missionary's own language. The baffling I had been treated to by Scipio melted to nothing in this. Did living men petrify, I should have changed to mineral between the sheets. The doctor got out of bed, lighted his lamp and found a book, and the two retired into the Virginian's room, where I could hear the exhortations as I lay amazed. In time the doctor returned, blew out his lamp, and settled himself. I had been very much awake, but was nearly gone to sleep again, when the door creaked and the Virginian stood by the doctor's side. "'Are you awake, sir?' "'What? What's that? What is it?' "'Excuse me, sir. The enemy is winning on me. I'm feeling less inward opposition to sin.' The lamp was lighted, and I listened to some further exhortations. They must have taken half an hour. When the doctor was in bed again, I thought that I heard him sigh. This upset my composure in the dark, but I lay face downward in the pillow, and the doctor was soon again snoring. I envied him for a while his faculty of easy sleep. But I must have dropped off myself for it was the lamp in my eyes that now waked me as he came back for the third time from the Virginian's room. Before blowing the light out he looked at his watch, and thereupon I inquired the hour of him. Three, said he. I could not sleep any more now, and I lay watching the darkness. "'I'm afeard to be alone,' said the Virginian's voice presently in the next room. "'I'm afeard.' There was a short pause, and then he shouted very loud, "'I'm losing my desire after the sincere milk of the word.' "'What? What's that? What?' The doctor's cot gave a great crack as he started up, listening, and I put my face deep in the pillow. "'I'm afeard. I'm afeard. Sin has quit being bitter in my belly.' "'Courage, my good man!' The doctor was out of bed with his lamp again, and the door shut behind him. Between them they made it long this time. I saw the window become gray, then the corners of the furniture grow visible, and outside the dry chorus of the blackbirds began to fill the dawn. To these the sounds of chickens and impatient hoofs in the stable were added, and some cow wandered by loudly calling for her calf. Next some one whistling passed near and grew distant. But although the cold hue that I lay staring at through the window warmed and changed, the doctor continued working hard over his patient in the next room. Only a word here and there was distinct, but it was plain from the Virginian's fewer remarks that the sin in his belly was alarming him less. Yes, they made this time long, but it proved indeed the last one and though some sort of catastrophe was bound to fall upon us, it was myself who precipitated the thing that did happen. Day was wholly come. I looked at my own watch, and it was six. I had been about seven hours in my bed, and the doctor had been about seven hours out of his. The door opened, and he came in with his book and lamp. He seemed to be shivering a little, and I saw him cast a longing eye at his couch. But the Virginian followed him even as he blew out the now quite superfluous light. They made a noticeable couple in their underclothes, the Virginian with his lean racehorse shanks running to a point at his ankle, 
and the doctor with his stomach and his fat, sedentary calves. "'You'll be going to breakfast and the ladies, sir, pretty soon,' said the Virginian, with a chastened voice. "'But I'll worry through the day somehow without you, and to-night you can turn your wolf loose on me again.' Once more it was no use. My face was deep in the pillow, but I made sounds as of a hen who has laid an egg. It broke on the doctor with a total instantaneous smash, quite like an egg. He tried to speak calmly. "'This is a disgrace, an infamous disgrace. Never in my life have I—' Words forsook him, and his face grew redder. "'Never in my life—' He stopped again, because, at the sight of him being dignified in his red drawers, I was making the noise of a dozen hens. It was suddenly too much for the Virginian. He hastened into his room, and there sank on the floor with his head in his hands. The doctor immediately slammed the door upon him, and this rendered me easily fit for a lunatic asylum. I cried into my pillow, and wondered if the doctor would come and kill me. But he took no notice of me whatever. I could hear the Virginian's convulsions through the door, and also the doctor furiously making his toilet within three feet of my head. And I lay quite still with my face the other way, for I was really afraid to look at him. When I heard him walk to the door in his boots, I ventured to peep, and there he was, going out with his bag in his hand. As I still continued to lie, weak and sore, and with a mind that had ceased all operation, the Virginian's door opened. He was clean and dressed and decent, but the devil still sported in his eye. I have never seen a creature more irresistibly handsome. Then my mind worked again. "'You've gone and done it,' said I. "'He's packed his valise. He'll not sleep here.' The Virginian looked quickly out of the door. "'Why, he's leaving us,' he exclaimed. "'Driving away right now in his little old buggy.' He turned to me, and our eyes met solemnly over this large fact. I thought that I perceived the faintest tincture of dismay in the features of Judge Henry's new, responsible, trusty foreman. This was the first act of his administration. Once again he looked out at the departing missionary. "'Well,' he vindictively stated, "'I certainly ain't going to run after him.' And he looked at me again. "'Do you suppose the judge knows?' I inquired. He shook his head. "'The window shades is all down still over yonder.' He paused. "'I don't care,' he stated, quite as if he had been ten years old. Then he grinned guiltily. "'I was mighty respectful to him all night.' "'Oh, yes, respectful, especially when you invited him to turn his wolf loose.' The Virginian gave a joyous gulp. He now came and sat down on the edge of my bed. "'I spoke awful good English to him most of the time,' said he. "'I can, you know, when I cinch my attention tight on to it. Yes, I certainly spoke a lot of good English. I didn't understand some of it myself.' He was now growing frankly pleased with his exploit. He had builded so much better than he knew. He got up and looked out across the crystal world of light. "'The doctor is at one-mile crossing,' he said. "'He'll get breakfast at the N-Lazy Y.' 
Then he returned and sat again on my bed, and began to give me his real heart. I never set up for being better than others, not even to myself. My thoughts ain't apt to travel around making comparisons, and I shouldn't wonder if my memory took as much notice of the meannesses I have done as of, as of the other actions. But to have to sit like a dumb lamb and let a stranger tell you for an hour that you're a hog and a swine, just after you have acted in a way which them that knows the facts would call pretty near white. Trampus! I could not help exclaiming. For there are moments of insight when a guess amounts to knowledge. Has Scipio told? No, not a word. He wouldn't tell me. Well, you see, I arrived home here this evening with several thoughts working and stirring inside me, and not one of them thoughts was what you'd call Christian. I ain't the least little bit ashamed of him. I'm a human. But after the judge, well, you heard him. And so when I went away from that talk and saw how positions was changed, a step outside stopped him short. Nothing more could be read in his face, for there was Trampas himself in the open door. "'Good morning,' said Trampas, not looking at us. He spoke with the same cool sullenness of yesterday. We returned his greeting. "'I believe I'm late in congratulating you on your promotion,' said he. The Virginian consulted his watch. "'It's only half after six, he returned. Trampas's sullenness deepened. "'Any man is to be congratulated on getting a rise, I expect.' This time the Virginian let him have it. "'Certainly, and I ain't forgetting how much I owe mine to you.' Trampas would have liked to let himself go. "'I've not come here for any forgiveness,' he sneered. "'When did you feel you needed any?' The Virginian was impregnable. Trampas seemed to feel how little he was gaining this way. He came out straight now. "'Oh, I haven't any judge behind me, I know.' I heard you'd be paying the boys this morning, and I've come for my time. You're thinking of leaving us? asked the new foreman. What's your dissatisfaction? Oh, I'm not needing anybody back of me. I'll get along by myself. It was thus he revealed his expectation of being dismissed by his enemy. This would have knocked any meditated generosity out of my heart, but I was not the Virginian. He shifted his legs, leaned back a little, and laughed. "'Go back to your job, Trampas, if that's all your complaint. You're right about me being in luck. But maybe there's two of us in luck.' It was this that Scipio had preferred me to see with my own eyes. The fight was between man and man no longer. The case could not be one of forgiveness, but the Virginian would not use his official position to crush his subordinate. Trampas departed with something muttered that I did not hear, and the Virginian closed intimate conversation by saying, "'You'll be late for breakfast.' With that he also took himself away. The ladies were inclined to be scandalized, but not the judge. When my whole story was done, he brought his fist down on the table, and not lightly this time. "'I'd make him lieutenant-general if the ranch offered that position,' he declared." Miss Molly Wood said nothing at the time, but in the afternoon, by her wish, she went fishing, with the Virginian deputed to escort her. I rode with them for a while. 
I was not going to continue a third in that party. The Virginian was too becomingly dressed, and I saw Kenilworth peeping out of his pocket. I meant to be fishing by myself when that volume was returned. But Miss Wood talked with skillful openness as we rode. "'I've heard all about you and Dr. McBride,' she said. "'How could you do it when the judge places such confidence in you?' He looked pleased. "'I reckon,' he said, "'I couldn't be so good if I wasn't bad once in a while.' "'Why, there's a skunk,' said I, noticing the pretty little animal trotting in front of us at the edge of the thickets. "'Oh, where is it? Don't let me see it!' screamed Molly. And at this deeply feminine remark, the Virginian looked at her with such a smile that, had I been a woman, it would have made me his to do what he pleased with on the spot. Upon the lady, however, it seemed to make less impression. Or rather, I had better say, whatever were her feelings, she very naturally made no display of them, and contrived not to be aware of that expression which had passed over the Virginian's face. It was later that these few words reached me while I was fishing alone. "'Have you anything different to tell me yet?' I heard him say. "'Yes, I have.' She spoke in accents light and well entrenched. "'I wish to say that I have never liked any man better than you. But I expect to.' He must have drawn small comfort from such an answer as that, but he laughed out indomitably. "'Don't you go betting on any such expectation.' And then their words ceased to be distinct, and it was only their two voices that I heard wandering among the windings of the stream." End of chapter 21